Hello and welcome to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things relating to your well-being, including interviews with experts in the fields of nutrition, physical and mental health, and my five-minute food facts series. I'm Amanda Hayes, your host, a lawyer turned nutritionist with a deep curiosity about well-being. I'm learning as much as I can about living a healthy, active and fulfilling life and sharing what I learn with you on this podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I would mention that although I will often be speaking with experts, any information or advice provided in Amanda's Wellbeing podcast is not intended to be used to treat, cure or prevent injuries or medical conditions and is not a substitute for advice from your own health professionals. Today I am here with Dr. Carolyn Berryman, who is a physiotherapist. She has over 20 years' experience as a clinician, much of it managing a median-sized private practice, and she's also spent over 20 years lecturing and tutoring on the physiotherapy program at the University of South Australia here in Adelaide. Carolyn has a long-term interest in pain management. She completed her Master's of Medical Science, Pain Management, at the University of Sydney in 2005 and completed her PhD at UniSA in 2015. Today, Carolyn and I are going to discuss the condition known as fibromyalgia, which is characterised by chronic pain in different muscles and bones, tenderness and stiffness, extreme tiredness and difficulty in sleeping. Fibromyalgia affects around 2-5% of the Australian population and mainly it occurs in young to middle-aged women. It is the third most common musculoskeletal condition and its prevalence increases with age. Hi Carolyn, welcome to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's very nice to be here. Well, it's my pleasure. So Carolyn, you're a physiotherapist and a scientific researcher You've had over 20 years experience as a physio in a clinical setting. Was physiotherapy a career you always knew you wanted to pursue? Well, um, I was exposed to physio as I was growing up because my mum's actually a physio. So I had that role model um, as I was growing up. But then I started looking around and, and I was doing reasonably well in a lot of different subjects. And I really had a thirst for languages. I had a bit of an exchange between the end of school and coming back again, but I couldn't practically see how to use those in in vocation. So I then thought, well, what do I want? I want a a job that I can do full-time or part-time, one that I could travel with, and one that didn't stick me behind a computer, which is kind (laughs) of funny now. But uh, I also wanted to help people because I liked caring for people. Um, So put all those things together. I didn't really want the emergency sort of room setting. Mm -hmm. And I like problem solving. So I put all those things together and I came up with physio. Brilliant. Well, it's obviously been a good fit for you because you've been doing it for quite a long time now, haven't you? You also lecture and tutor in the physiotherapy school at the University of South Australia. So in what ways do you think having a real world clinical experience informs your approach to teaching? That's a great question. And uh, it's one I've thought about quite a bit because... Uh, I would suggest that schools these days or universities these days possibly don't have the same connection with clinic that they used to. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'd say as a clinician, uh, if you go in to teach, then you're a bit more, well, you certainly go in with a grounded um, perspective of what 
the theoretical knowledge that you're taking in actually how that applies to the clinic and I think that brings a lot of authenticity and there are lots of good stories because you know it it is always a good story that will come out of the clinic and that's actually one of the things I miss is not talking to as many people at the present time because I'm more involved in research than I am in in clinical work um I think you're also a bit more aware of the pitfalls of of I guess hypothesizing making a theory uh, and then thinking that it will go well in the clinic but when you try it out on several different people it's not it doesn't work so well on each of right. them so I guess some of the pitfalls of applying theory to practice are all also what you would bring from the clinic into yeah, academia that, and that sounds really interesting and I think you could probably um, say a similar thing to a lot of different professions I mean even in the law where I was originally trained there's a big difference between the theory and the practice mm-hmm. I mean you when you start your first job as a young lawyer you feel like you know nothing <laughs> that's so true that was exactly the experience I had when I first left uni and and started working in one of the hospitals as a physiotherapist and you're so nervous and yeah. so anxious about what you're going to do when you see the patients for the first time yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Yeah. So in your research interests, like some of the other guests, and I believe you know some or all of them, Brendan Mowat, Brenton Hordaker and Felicity Braithwaite, um, you look at the science of pain, managing persistent pain and neuroplasticity. So today I'd like to discuss um, something you're an expert in and a very specific cause of pain, which is fibromyalgia. It's described as a mysterious syndrome, and I guess that's because there's still quite a lot that's not known about it. So perhaps, Carolyn, you can start by explaining to us what are the symptoms of fibromyalgia? Yeah, sure. Um, Fibromyalgia is mostly characterized by this sort of widespread ongoing or persistent pain. And that that is um, reported in many locations in the body. So arms, legs, head, wherever you have a body part is often where people will report pain Mm -hmm. if they have got fibromyalgia. It's um, co-presenting symptoms that usually include things like fatigue, uh, increased sensitivity to um, sensory events, so Mm -hmm. light, sound, uh, sometimes perfumes, smells, those sort of things. And also often have bowel problems, so irritable bowel sort of Mm syndrome-like condition that goes with it. There are also energy changes, so along with the fatigue, people find it um, also difficult to continue on with activities. Once they've started, they find themselves low in energy. And the other major co-presenting complaint is um, is what they call fibrofog or what we call fibrofog mm-hmm. which is actually more along the lines of difficulty concentrating difficulty with memory um, and sort of that feeling that you've got cotton wool a lot of the participants and patients that I've seen with fibromyalgia would say they've got cotton wool in their brain and they can't oh, think dear. properly no oh, that doesn't sound good that sounds a little bit like pregnancy brain perhaps <laughs> Well, yes, yes, it's possible. Um, So do the symptoms then vary in severity from person to person? They do, and in constellation. And when I say constellation, that means that you might get a different group of symptoms Mm -hmm. for each person, which makes the diagnosis, as you can imagine, quite difficult for health professionals. Um, The other thing that is a common complaint also is sleep disturbance, Um, and that would be, yeah... 
a presenting complaint that most of people with fibromyalgia would have. But as I say, they they do come with a different constellation of symptoms. Right. So you, you can have some symptoms and not others then, is that yes. what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can. You can have, yeah. It affects so many of the body's systems. And I'd like to get a sense, um, if we can, if it's possible, of what it might be like to live with fibromyalgia, because it does sound quite debilitating. And I know that you counsel people and come across people in your work. So what are some of the things they describe? You've already said the cotton wool um, feeling in the brain. What, what else do they say? I think a good way to illustrate this is um, a colleague of mine who grew up with her mother who had fibromyalgia and her mother was a very high achieving athlete before the fibromyalgia Mm -hmm. um, became a burden for her. And as my colleague was growing up, she reports these, um, the daily sort of activities and that is that her mum found it really difficult to get out of bed before about 10 o'clock in the morning. Oh, gosh. And so the kids had to get themselves dressed and make their breakfast. They'd go in and talk to mum and and have, you know, bring her breakfast and try and uh, tell her what that what they were doing for the day. Mm-hmm. They go off to school, make their own way there, and then when they'd come home, if they had questions, she would be back in bed again. So her ability to stay out of bed was probably around 10 to 3, and then she was back in having uh, having to lie down because of lack of energy and feeling exhausted wow. and just having this pain all the time, which, as you can imagine, would be very draining and it's very difficult. Yes. Um, when they went out on activities so for the weekends and things they used to go on very low-key activities and my colleague friend didn't realize how restricted they were really until her mother started um, actively engaging with trying to get better um, from fibromyalgia sorry and so they would go out on the weekends and the father would um, do all the playing with the kids and mum would sit on uh, a picnic blanket not being able to engage in any of the activities they'd have to plan that they'd be close to toilets and uh, conveniences of that nature so that um, in case you know some of the irritable bowel syndromes mm-hmm. became problematic at the time so there was a lot of family adjustment um, yeah. and you can imagine that in some families that they'll be able to adjust to that but other families it can be a, a source of um difficulty actually just oh, staying yeah. together as a family and and trying to make your way and certainly work is was not an option the the mum before all of this was a high performing athlete but also a teacher and she had to give up her work oh, that's um, really heartbreaking to hear actually i mm. mean particularly for someone who was so active must must be so frustrating. Well, it's it's part of the mysteriousness of the disorder is why me, why this, why mm. can't someone tell me what's going on? Um, and there didn't seem to be a way out of it for a yeah. long period of time for this particular family. And and part of that is that it it takes a lot to come to understand the nebulous nature of of fibromyalgia and. Uh, health professionals have to be committed, really, to understanding the depth and the breadth of the problem Mm -hmm. to try and intervene on several different, um, by several different paths. Okay. And we will talk about that Mm. um, coming up. Earlier, you mentioned it can be difficult to diagnose and uh, there's no direct diagnosis. So unlike, for example, testing for diabetes, you could look at fasting blood sugar 
or for a broken bone, you can do an x-ray. So how then is fibromyalgia diagnosed? That's also a great question. And um, the current standard diagnosis is actually a self-report. And so the self-report, if you can imagine an A4 sheet of paper, has got on one side um, a picture of a body, Mm -hmm. uh, front and back, and uh, the person with fibromyalgia has to write on there how many um, areas are affected by pain. And then on the other side of this sheet of A4 paper, it's got a little um, quiz, really, and it's asking about those symptoms like fatigue and bowel symptoms, um, unrefreshing sleep. And then the crux of the matter at the end is, is there any other disorder that could explain this? And if the answer to that is no and the disorder has been there for longer than three months, then they will score highly and that will be the, the way the diagnosis is um, formed. So does that mean then, is that a diagnosis of exclusion or not quite? I think you could call it that because there are no biomarkers. So we yeah. can't actually take a blood test or we can't look at the brain or mm. we can't um, do any x-rays or anything nothing like that will yeah. actually show up it will be definitive so yes I think you could call it a diagnosis of exclusion and when the diagnosis is made does there need to be a certain number like a threshold I guess of symptoms or something like that or, or is it just more of a collective thing? no so the self-report is actually scored so right. the number of areas that you would put in the widespread pain index plus um, answers to the other questions will come up with a particular score and if it, there is a threshold so if it goes over that threshold then the person is deemed to have fibromyalgia right I do want to come to this later but who would be doing that test is that something mm. a GP would do yes yeah, so the GP could do that for mm-hmm. screening I'm not sure how widely I, I haven't worked in the GP realm for a while so I'm not quite sure how widely spread it is amongst primary carers like that certainly every rheumatologist that I know would be able to administer the screen the screen I don't think is readily available we we use it for um, research purposes so if we are recruiting people for a research project that involves fibromyalgia we'll always get the people to the the participants um, to fill in the screen um, and so that we have a standard diagnosis yeah sure Mm. no that makes sense and the one of the other great mysteries about fibromyalgia is we don't know what the causes are. Mm. Um, I believe there are certain things like a genetic predisposition and the mind-body connection certainly plays a role. So perhaps you could talk to us a bit about that, Carolyn. Yes, it certainly does play a role. So um, on one side of the... Uh, scale. So if we think about a sort of stress scale, and on one side of the stress scale, there are the things that we cannot change. So genetics, um, environment, the context we're born in, how people look after us when we're younger, and, and how that goes. On that side of the scale, that they could all be stressors, mm-hmm. which we might carry with us over a period of time, and may may or may not manifest into anything different but there are certainly risk factors as we know for um, the development of fibromyalgia and on the other side are the sort of things that we could maybe take a bit of a role in so the things like diet um, exercise making use of opportunities that might come along um, uh, that might change our economic position or those sorts of things and they may if you think of balance they might 
balance it up a little bit and hence there's a thought that perhaps we don't tip the scales over too far so we don't change the or, or that we recover from the stresses that we've been under um, but at the the current thinking is that perhaps uh, accumulation of stresses uh, will maybe tip tip the scales in favor of risking the onset of fibromyalgia mm-hmm. what about comorbidities like obesity and things like that does that make you more predisposed to it or do we know or not we there's i don't think we do know for 100 percent that these things are predisposing what we do know is that there's a really strong connection between the function of the immune system and the function of the gut so if if you're not looking after yourself by diet or exercise and the microbiome in your gut is uh, unbalanced then you might also not be supporting the immune function and there seems to be this seems to be a trigger so immune disbalance or uh, imbalance might be a trigger for the onset of fibromyalgia a uh, thing often reported is that you have a virus and then you never quite recover from the right. virus and that that is the starting point for some people's journey with fibromyalgia um so there seem to be interconnections between the systems yeah. in that way and that could be the sort of pathway to the onset of fibromyalgia but you also asked me the question about the mind body connection yes uh, and there's a very strong understanding that um, that what is happening in the body is actually uh, also makes changes in the brain. Uh, and so inter- intervening, I guess, with a widespread uh, persistent pain like the one that's generated in fibromyalgia, it's really important to take care of both the peripheral or the mm-hmm. sort of body inputs as well as what's happening in the brain and some of those brain changes as I'm sure you've heard from some of the people talking about neuroplasticity they're adaptive changes to experience and if we're experiencing things like ongoing pain then there are changes to the pathways and the networks and the way that the brain is functioning so uh, to improve those it's it is possible to look after the body and those things might change or it's also possible to change things in the brain and the body might change so just being aware that there is this connection it's absolutely fascinating i was speaking to a person i was interviewing yesterday and the discussion we were having was about was actually about dietary fiber and the microbiome and the link to depressive Mm. symptoms Mm. so there's just you know there's so much going on in between the gut and the brain and the body and um we really feel i feel like sometimes we're at the tip of the iceberg in unraveling it all i think that's a really good image to take away because i'm sure that's the case you know we've got this little bit of knowledge at the top but it just goes so much more deeply than that and the interconnections i think there are more cells in your and you might have found this out yesterday but more cells in your biome than there are in the rest of your body alone and yes it's just such a um a, an environment and a complex environment that we live with all the time yes and we do need to look after it yes <laughs> now i did read somewhere uh, something i thought was very interesting and it said that fibromyalgia represents a mind-body hyperconnection rather than a mind-body disconnection. And I think what they were saying in that um, particular quote was that the brain can become oversensitized to pain signals, for example. So 
Is that, um, do you think that sounds plausible or correct? It is, well, it is plausible. And one of the studies that we actually did was to look at the way that sensory information, in this case was auditory processing, so listening to a sound, um, how that was processed with people with fibromyalgia compared to healthy controls. And what we found out was that, in fact, the the processes for dampening down or, or uh, controlling that sound were totally normal between the two of us. But when we gave a really big sound, an augmented sound, the response was much bigger in the people with right. um, fibromyalgia. And similarly, uh, most of the people, when we did a body um, awareness sort of survey, people with fibromyalgia will also report much more awareness of their interoceptive signals. So right. the signals that come from your heart, um, not that we're very much aware of the ones from the lung or the liver or those sorts of things, but people who are very tuned in to their interoceptive signals or their internal signals seem to um, amplify though they seem to be amplified in the brain in comparison to a normal sort of processing so I think this hypersensitivity comes from something we know we know there's something different about the processing of those signals in people with fibromyalgia. I wonder if that then presents a treatment opportunity um when we'll get on to that because we don't know the causes of fibromyalgia and there's still a lot I believe we don't know about the condition itself um, prevention therefore remains elusive Mm. is that a fair comment I think that's a really Mm. fair comment that Mm. we can start to um, trace some of the origins of the disorder through patient stories or you know participant stories or people with fibromyalgia stories but we, it's very difficult to run any study, for example, that's longitudinal, that gets a person before they have fibromyalgia yeah. to see what it is that actually triggers this horrendous disorder off in people. So we are having difficulty, I have to say, trying to pin down yeah. preventative strategies for fibromyalgia. You can say them in a you know sort of global way, and it's really important for people to think that their diet and their exercise and the balance that they have of stress in their life and their resilience and coping strategies they're all really important. And I think we're we're, we're becoming more and more aware of that. But and but they're global strategies, and they're not yes. particularly specific to people who may end up with fibromyalgia. And also, you talked about trauma. Um, So, for example, a child going through trauma, there's Mm. not a lot they can do to prevent that as a child. Absolutely true. Um, And and they're not often, well, you know, even if they were aware of it, I'm sure they are aware of the context in which they're in and it's it's uncomfortable. But actually a lot of that is retrospective um, reflection on the situation and trying to make some sense of it when you're a bit older. At the time, you just, I can't imagine really how... It works with yeah. children in a in a bad context or in a difficult situation or in circumstances that they can't control. So no, yeah, there are some. I think as a society, perhaps we could reflect on that, and we can think about ways of supporting um, uh, su- supporting childcare, I guess, or, or supporting the first one thousand days, as um, yes. they speak about as mm. being the most important for development of children and just support families and and new mums and you know generally Mm. a bit more of a concern yeah it's so important isn't it to kind of in quotes get it right when (laughs) children are young which can be 
more difficult for some than others, depending on their circumstances. I think that's true. And I think maybe we've become more aware of that because in the past, I've heard things said like children are so adaptable, it just doesn't matter what happens. But in actual fact, there are enough studies out there now for me to be quite firmly convinced that it does matter. And um, and that as a society, that's one of the places we can we can put effort, which will reward us greatly down the track. Yeah, the absolutely. Sort of Heckman curve, if you've ever heard of that, but comes back, you know, multiple times. Yeah. So. Well, that's something for us to all think about. I think one of the other issues with um, being diagnosed with fibromyalgia is that people that suffer from it, so this comes back to the the mental side of things, um, feel very much misunderstood. They sometimes feel like they're not believed. And this, of course, could potentially lead to misdiagnosis or underdiagnosis. So can you talk to us about how this can impact the patient's mental health? Oh, yeah, for sure. One of the aspects or the perspectives that we've learnt I guess in studying ongoing and persistent pain is that um, validating the story and trying to find some explanation for the story that of the person sitting in front of you is one of the most powerful things Mm -hmm. that you can do because actually understanding what's going on within your body and understanding the context in which that's occurring and thinking that you might have some control over it changes the way you will respond to that and decreases threat. And threat is always something that will stir up an emotional sort of reaction uh, and will govern uh, responses, I guess, in a way that's not um, very helpful in the long run. And so persistent threat will actually cause changes in the brain that makes it much more likely that you respond in an emotional way, which is energy consuming, but it's also not very helpful for um, getting better, I guess, or Mm -hmm. actively um, dealing with the disorder. So often with threat and fear and those sort of things, you end up with mood comorbidities such as depression and anxiety, and um, uh, it, it makes a sort of vicious cycle. Yeah, it would be very, very difficult for someone going through this and feeling as though no one really understands them or mm. even believes them, which mm. because it is such a such an amorphous sounding thing, isn't it? It's generalised and not specific. And that leads to a lot of the conundrums about trying to do the yeah. diagnosis because you can imagine if it's just started and you're trying to make sense of it and you're trying to tell someone a story, you know, the GP's sitting on the other side of the desk and you're saying, well, everything's hurting. The GP, unless they've done quite a bit of um, searching around in this kind of area and they have some interest in the area, then they possibly won't have had a lot of training Um to understand ongoing pain and that's one of the other areas that perhaps we could think about improving is actually undergraduate and postgraduate training about chronic pain um, or persistent pain mechanisms so that people can understand that a little bit better because often diagnosis takes six or seven years for for people with fibromyalgia it's not just that actually there's another disorder called complex regional pain syndrome that often takes as long and right. people are they're left feeling un, you know in the unknown or not validated or not believed and it's yeah. a really desperate place to be well i had have a um underactive thyroid a hypothyroid condition and that took several years to be diagnosed because 
it um, it was just not common for someone mm. my age and you know all sorts of other things oh you're tired you do too much mm. you you're depressed this that you know and it um, but then when you finally do get a diagnosis in, in my case it was a huge sense of relief because I thought okay I'm not just lazy <laughs> there's exactly. a reason for yeah. this yeah. Mm. I'm not making this up this yeah. is not Yes, exactly. You do question yourself a bit when, you know, the the doctor or whoever you're seeing says, oh, you're just, you know, you're doing too much, you're too busy. And I think, "Mm, I don't think so. Anyway, Mm. so in in terms of pain and cognitive function, you have done some research revolving around chronic pain and its impact on neurological function, um, such as executive function. So I know this is a big area, but in a nutshell, Can you explain to us um, in what way chronic pain can impact someone's mental ability or mental health? Oh, yes. (laughs) I have a go at that. I found (laughs) putting the pressure on here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So essentially, once pain becomes persistent, it actually starts making different tracks in the brain because the old adage of if it fires together it wires together right we're not hardwired but we do have these functional sort of functional networks that represent different aspects of our function I guess Mm -hmm. once we've got something like persistent pain that we're processing then we that becomes the more dominant of some of these networks and so it might get connected into different networks or use resources there are a few theories about this but if you take the idea that perhaps we have limited resources in our brain and we're using a lot of them to process the persistent pain sensations and look out for danger and be a bit hyper vigilant make sure we don't get hurt again then that can take resources away from um from cognitive function or Mm -hmm. from you know just mental arithmetic the very simple things like calculating change at the checkout or just paying attention to where you are your surroundings and things like that you might not feel that that's really very threatening you might have been to the well out into the garden for example many a time and you might not think it's very threatening so you walk along not knowing what's going on and step on a bee or something like that it's a very simple example of cognitive function, but you're not making a decision based on where you are. You're actually because you're doing other things. Your brain's kind of connected yeah. into looking after you for the pain rather than for other things. Well, that makes me think of a book I read about willpower, and it's sort of in a similar vein. It says we, willpower is a finite resource, so that's why by mm. the end of the day, when you wake up and say, "Right, today I'm going to run ten kilometers, and I'm not going to drink alcohol," and I, mm. and um, by the time you've used up all your willpower making decisions all day, you might get to the end of the day and think, oh, I think I will have a glass of wine. And so what this book was saying was to make a lot of decisions habits to take so you're not, right, dra- so you're not drawing, drawing on your willpower. Yep. So. Oh, I like that. I think I'm going to use that one <laughs> on <laughs> yeah, a daily that was, basis. That was interesting. Oops, so no, I've run out of willpower. Thank you. <laughs> My willpower ended at 5pm. That's it. I like it. (laughs) So as we've um, already alluded to, there there is no cure for fibromyalgia. But what I would like to do is focus on some positive things and talk Mm. about what we can actually do and what is known and what can help. So, um, Carolyn, can you talk us through some of the things that can be done for people with fibromyalgia? Sure. Look, I'll give you the evidence-based stuff first. So this this has evidence behind it as being effective to a point, moderately effective perhaps. 
um, there are four pillars. First one is education, and that's that kind of let's diminish the threat by educating ourselves on what it is that's um, that's causing. I say that very cautiously. Mm-hmm. What it is that's generating or what underlies the um, symptoms and the phenomenology or the the manifestations of fibromyalgia. Uh, so to get as much knowledge as you possibly can. Now, I know that's slightly difficult because actually if you've ever Googled fibromyalgia, you do get a lot of knowledge, but not, of, not all of it is very plausible. Mm-hmm. And so getting good sites, try and stick to the sites that are um, developed through government organisations yep. or through academic organisations, and they will often have the more uh, authentic and um, validated information so that would be the first thing or talk to a health professional who's interested in it there are a few rheumatologists who would take um, fibromyalgia as a specialty right a lot of physiotherapists are very interested in fibromyalgia so they would also be good people to talk to second thing is pharmaceuticals so um, there may be a place here for some sort of uh, anti-anxiety tablet or uh, an anti-pain like an analgesic sort of tablet or a combination of both of those any type of intervention like that needs to be looked after medically so either the rheumatologist or the gp needs to have a discussion with the person about what kind of medication would suit in their case because there Mm -hmm. may be cross you know um reactions with other drugs and things like that but it's worth trying some of these um sort of anti-anxiety drugs or um analgesics to see how they perform in you. Sure. They perform really differently in everybody. So (laughs) trying a few out is not Mm -hmm. a bad option. Exercise is the next thing. Now, exercise is an interesting um, category for people with fibromyalgia because of the fatigue. And so it's often very hard to motivate um, people to exercise and it might be better at a moderate pace. So the information that comes to hand about this is things like hydrotherapy, mm-hmm. walking groups where you're actually getting out into um, nature and doing things in a sort of uh, less constrained environment than perhaps a gym um, and just at a moderate pace yep. to start with and you would pace into the exercises so do a little bit less than you think you can do and then gradually build that up and that's often try and get the social aspects going with exercise yeah. as well if, if I was that's just possible. going to ask at that point when you suggest walking with a group do you think being with other people might take your mind off a bit hmm. pain you know you could, I think some of the discussions lost things, in a conversation and yeah, yeah. Mm, it's okay it is difficult to disconnect from this widespread persistent pain and I'm not going to make any light sort of lightness out of that mm. but actually getting absorbed in conversations and having some things that you also might find interesting tips that other people have found that will help them um, and I think it's really important to get new ideas and yeah. get out and just experience things that are um, uh, that might give you a different perspective on the problem. And the other thing is sleep, just getting into a good sleep hygiene and trying to make sure you go to bed at the same time, not have any stimulants before you go to bed, have the same time of waking up. Actually try and get yourself into the habit of getting out of bed once you wake up. Right. Um, uh, yeah, and they're the sort of four okay. pillars that yeah. are, we know are going to be useful there. But we also know now, and you might lead into this, is about meditation and 
um, yes. doing some things that would a mindfulness that will calm calm the nervous system. I dare not say it, but um, they will often be uh, activities that will be able to decrease the amount of activity in the brain and right. focus concentration. So mindfulness mindfulness meditation comes to comes to mind comes to mind yes indeed <laughs> in that one and things like gentle movements like tai chi perhaps that's actually probably yeah. quite a good um option i think and i'm pretty sure there's some research that actually supports the use of tai chi in people with fibromyalgia yeah that's nice gentle flowing movement plus mm. you're, you're using your brain to think about what you're doing so um, and what about other adjunct treatments like acupuncture and things like that? Is there any evidence for those? At the moment, there's not any evidence for that that intervention or mm-hmm. the effectiveness of that intervention. Uh, and at this point, you would say, well, you know, for each individual person, I think they need to take their own context into consideration sure. and choose for themselves. So I'm not saying that these things are not, that people shouldn't try them out, mm. um, just in a group level. There's no evidence for yeah, their Yeah, and, and just because there's no evidence doesn't mean that it doesn't work. It's just perhaps hasn't been studied yet or there's yeah. lots of reasons why there might be no evidence for it. Yeah, well, sometimes I wonder whether it translates very well from east to west. So the, yes. the philosophy that someone might be using in the eastern um, sort of world, per se, uh, might be very different from someone applying it here and you know, does that make a difference? Yeah. Well, we, there are a lot of, yeah, questions to ask about that for curiosity's sake, I think. Yeah, that's a very good point. And uh, what do you know about what's going on in the um, research space for fibromyalgia at the moment? Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we're about to run a new experiment next year. We're going to start doing that. Um, and we'd be very pleased to hear from anyone with fibromyalgia who are interested in joining us. And that's actually looking at this interceptive sort of scenario. So looking at heartbeat, um, how the heartbeat is uh, recorded in the brain for people with fibromyalgia compared to people without, just to see whether we can find any more ways in, I guess, of um, potential therapy. Uh, there, But in the broader space, there's actually, um, just at the end of the year, there'll be a Controversies in Fibromyalgia virtual conference, right. which is the second one that they're running. They ran one last year, which was really interesting. Um, this uh, brings in people who are experts from a, a lot from the northern hemisphere. There are not so many people moving from southern hem or joining from the southern hemisphere, but in the northern hemisphere, in places like Italy and Spain, um, there is a very strong research contingent right, well, that's for interesting. people with fibromyalgia. Yeah. So there is a little bit of, I think, the recognition of fibromyalgia is a little bit cultural in that some countries are more likely to recognise it. If you look at a big world map, you you won't see people giving you a prevalence pattern in, say, Russia, for example. Oh, okay. So it may be that it's not recognised in that kind of context, mm-hmm. which is part and parcel of more of its mysteriousness, I guess. Yes. <laughs> um, but so the people in the controversies, they're going to be looking at the gut-brain axis. 
Sounds fascinating. Mm, and it's, it's a role within fibromyalgia. They're investigating immune function because that's really related, like the gut-brain axis and the immune function go together. And we already know from research that there are both peripheral, so in the body, yeah. changes to the immune function, but there's also changes in the brain to our immune system function in people with fibromyalgia. And we don't know whether that's that contributes to the start of it or whether it's actually something that is sustaining this upregulation or the amplification of the signal. It certainly has that role. If you acutely injure yourself, then the immune system will certainly have that role to sort of help the amplification of the signal. So it may be involved in that way. And, of course, exercise is in there as well, trying Mm -hmm. to work out what's a good dose of exercise, how helpful it is and what things we can recommend. So if someone's interested in joining that conference, is that how do they do that? Is that possible or is it for professionals only? This one's for professionals only, but with the group that I'm with at the moment, we run currently a public seminar for a, a different disorder, which is complex regional pain syndrome that's coming up very, very soon. And that is for everyone to join. And we're thinking that next year we'll actually try and find a date that would be good to run something that's very similar for fibromyalgia oh, because actually I don't think there's enough information out there or or places for people to come and grab that sort of information. Yeah, I can imagine that would be very helpful. So it sounds like there's some um, potentially interesting information that might come out of that conference. So if someone is suffering from fibromyalgia or knows someone else who is, There are some support groups out there, I believe, and I will put a link to one called Fibromyalgia Support SA, and that's for people in South Australia. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, So if someone has or suspects that they have fibromyalgia, what steps do you recommend they take? Who should they see? I think their first step would be to go and see a GP Mm -hmm. and explain what they think is going on and press the issue and be very curious. Ask the GP what they're thinking yeah. and um, go through the processes of, of analysing the information that they're given. Um, yeah, and if they have questions, don't stop questioning. I think one of the things that we're really trying to promote is um, self-efficacy for, yes. for people with disorders where they're feeling uncomfortable because they haven't actually had a good diagnosis or they're not comfortable with the information that they've got back just keep asking the questions that's actually why the health professional is there so trying to break down those barriers of any power play within those clinical and therapeutic realms yeah I guess you've got to be your own advocate in a way or take a friend or um, a family member with you that can help if you feel a bit nervous or something that's a great idea yeah Mm. and so from there usually the GP would give the referral to a rheumatologist and given that there are so many comorbidities with it so the gut and and thinking and all those sorts of things that come as part of fibromyalgia you may find that there are other options that you're also sent to investigate so with an endocrinologist or with a um yeah gastroenterologist all these big ologist names yes yes so they're yeah so it really does take i it sounds to me like it takes quite a team 
to look after someone with fibromyalgia? Well, I think in the first instance, to get all the answers, sometimes that may be a a very varied process. And then it's really great to try and find someone that you gel with and that will be your health coach. And that doesn't actually have to be um, a health professional. So as you were saying, you know, if you've got an advocate, someone in your corner who can help you, like my colleague's family, for example, they they kept helping their mum and she eventually had enough strength and enough um, capacity and enough information to start doing something differently. And I'm really proud and pleased to kind of say that my colleague was probably the catalyst for that. So she did some physiotherapy training and then got very interested in why her mum was like she was as she was growing up and so helped to see uh, helped her to see a different way of doing things. Mm. And the point you made earlier, one of the pillars of treatment is education. It's very important, I think, because if you are suffering and you you don't know a lot Mm. about it, you might be scared. You might think, if I exercise, will that make me worse because I'll feel more tired, whereas, in fact, exercise is good. Well, it can be, but the Mm. thing, yeah, and the thing about it is that you need to do it in the context that you believe that it's good as well because you're, you're absolutely right. If you're scared of this or you think that it's going to hurt you more or give you more damage or, or you won't recover for several days and you're worried about, you know, what's going to happen for the next few days. They're all real concerns. They're all very valid concerns and, and they need unpacking. You need to talk those through with somebody and then gradually pace into some sort of activity. And the reason I keep coming back to that is that it stimulates the immune system. Yeah. It helps you regulate the fluid in your body. It helps you, you know, it helps your body to actually regulate itself. And so we do need a, a certain level of um, exercise um, or activity. Stress to the body. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, now I remember a question that I wanted to ask earlier. Uh, You talked about the immune system. Does that mean someone with fibromyalgia is more prone to getting other um, viruses and um, infections and things because their immune system isn't perhaps as robust as someone else, like a cold and things like that? Well, that's an interesting question. I, uh, it's not. I don't think it's a matter of robustness. Mm-hmm. So I think they're equally robust right. in comparison to other people. It's just the way that it's functioning, and that it's not quite as balanced a function. So it might actually be a little bit more alert, a little bit more inflammation happening. Uh, at a very low level, it's very difficult to determine. So we have no biomarkers for that mm. either. It'd be really nice if we could just take a blood test and look at the immune cells in there and go, oh, yep, that's it, you've got this, and we can make it all back to normal balance. But it's um, it's really individually sort of expressed, and there are so many <laughs> of the contributions, I think, to the uh, sort of milieu within the immune system that we really haven't been able to nail that right at um, all so i wonder if hopefully one day in the future yeah maybe. well it's quite mm. possible that mm. uh, well, and and i would be hopeful that these things will change and it may not change in the direction you think of there's another colleague of mine who um uses photo photonics so light shining on cells to see what combination of cells might be there and the sort of inflammation that's happening at the time. So it may not be a blood test. It may actually be this light test that that will determine it in the end. That sounds very futuristic. Oh, (laughs) isn't it? It's just wonderful. That's the research realm. You sort of get sucked into all these amazing um, 
ways of thinking and new yeah. perspectives on things and new technology. And so people have don't to know think yet. very laterally, don't yep. they, yep. when they're doing research. So, um, Carolyn, I'm always very interested in learning from women who successfully navigate careers and family life like you have done because it is a juggle and it's something that I've struggled with over the years and I know many other women who also have struggled with it. So what are some of the things that you could pinpoint um, that have enabled you to combine a busy career and family life? (laughs) It's a great question again. Um, Early on, so I've got one son and we would have had more, but it just didn't work out for us. Um, And early on in his life, my parents, mum and dad, were really the key uh, ingredients in me continuing Mm -hmm. on. So after about six weeks... And uh, of having had Ian, then my mum came around to look after him. She was absolutely overjoyed, but she'd come and look after him while I went off and did some oh, teaching. Wow. Or excellent. And then the next year, she would look after him a couple of days. And then we got a nanny, actually. So it is support. Yeah. And being having that discussion with the other half, or whoever's with you at the time, or if you don't have another half, then just having the discussion with yourself, that you really have the will to want to be doing these things outside of home that it's part of something that drives you and how do you work it out best amongst the group of people that are family so I think you just have to have very open and honest conversations and um yeah and if you're lucky then you can have the support and I feel very lucky because I was able to have my parents there and then have this lovely lady who came in and was with Ian between the ages of about two and five when he started to go back to school. And he's kept this great relationship with her. She came in two days a week and they've just had this lovely relationship. They go and have illegal lunch because I'm a lunch Nazi and no one goes to um, Hungry Jack's or McDonald's or anything like that, but they used to go to illegal lunch. (laughs) So they still do that. That's their birthday treat. (laughs) Oh, that's really lovely. So support's the key really in whatever form it comes, whether it's a family member or um, a paid help or something like that. That's that's what's worked for me. Yes. Oh, that's, um, that's good to hear. And you also mentioned to me, Carolyn, when we had a coffee before we recorded this episode, that when you were a child, I think you were in high school, your parents swapped roles. So (laughs) can you tell us a bit about that and and what you've learned looking back on that? Yeah, so my dad was really keen to retire early. By that I mean 58. And so obviously my parents had had this discussion because my mum had stayed well, she had to finish work when she had her first child. That was law at that point in time. So she stayed home for 16 years. And then she was offered this opportunity, as I said, she was a physio, to go into private practice with some doctors that she knew. And so she and Maury, my my not my husband, my father, <laughs> obviously had this conversation. And Maury said, great, I'm out of work. Excellent. They gave him a nice package which you know wouldn't happen well maybe it would happen these days but anyway it was enough for him to say um I'll have half of it as a little nest egg and then just pay me the pension and so they they did and he uh, retired at 58 and then became house husband and did not look back he was in the shed all day he'd come in, make dinner. He was happy to be around, unlike when he would come home from work at five o'clock and expect dinner on the table and everything was chaotic and, you know, it was much nicer life. So looking back on it, I think that they realised that roles don't have to be 
absolutely tied to biology, I guess. Yes. And, um, and I learned that if you have dreams and aspirations that you talk about it with the other person and hopefully if, you, if you're happy to share life and go through life together, then you can make all sorts of things that are perhaps not normal work. Yes, and I think what interests me a lot about that story is that when your parents did that, it was highly unusual for a man mm. to stay at home, whereas these days it's not quite as unusual, but it's still not that common. No, no, it's not. I think it might be different in some cultures, although maybe maybe it's just changed. I've got another friend whose um, husband actually does this job as in house husband mm. uh, and he knows a couple of other people who are doing it so you're right it's a bit more common now in that time that my dad chose to do it it certainly wasn't I felt really special I have to say I, I, I felt a little bit emancipated and a little bit powerful yeah great because it's like okay, it doesn't always have to be that that person goes off to work. So maybe it gave me a little bit of that drive too to think that I, you know, what it wasn't, it was worthwhile going to university because I actually could have a career if I wanted to have yeah, one. Yeah, that's, that's excellent. And also it's good to, I think, for to see, in your case, father cooking and, and, you know, doing things around the house. Like, you know, we're all in this together. I it's, know. It's hard that, work to yeah. run a house. It is. Mm. Yeah, that was actually fantastic to see mm. that happening. And I think Dad's cooking was slightly better than Mum's, <laughs> actually. Maybe it was a change. Maybe after 16 years she was he, he, he was going to bring some other things in. But yeah. he, he was also quite creative, so we ended up with lasagnas and all sorts of things. It oh, was, yum. Mm, good value. Oh, that's fantastic. So, Carolyn, who or what inspires you? <laughs> um, oh, so my parents, they have inspired me over the years. I'm also inspired by nature and we had a little bit of a conversation about that and how beautiful it is to be surrounded by nature. So mm. I like going for walks out um, out in the wilderness, but long walks and things like that. But I also love having a garden and I married a gardener and a sailor and so he creates these most wonderful spaces. I'm truly lucky from that perspective too, but I do like spending time out in the garden. And I think I'm really inspired by people who try and take the most positive light on things even when they're not going very well and and make the best of their life whatever mm -hmm. that might be I don't know what a measure of success is except that if the person feels really content and feels like they've put their best effort in and they've got a little bit of reward for that effort then I'm just I'm truly inspired by those yeah. people I just do want to clarify one thing Carolyn said she married a gardener and a sailor that's actually one man, not two. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Sorry. Yep. That, there is two qualities, though. <laughs> that just, that just, That's funny. That was that, funny. <laughs> Good <And> point. So, <laughs> the, the final question I'd like to ask all my guests, Carolyn, if you could recommend two things that people could do to improve their well-being, what would they be? Yes. Well, I had a toss. Oh, can I have three? You can have three. Can I have yes. three? <laughs> they're very simple and they're very um, standard, really. It's look after your sleep because actually you repair overnight. Yeah. And if you've got a good sleep, then um, all sorts of things are possible the next day that perhaps weren't if you weren't going to sleep or were having difficulty sleeping. So sleep habits. I can't, you know, you can't say to somebody, well, go and have a good sleep. It's just get in the habit of going to bed at the same time, not having stimulants beforehand, getting up at about the same time, good sleep habits. Eat well or nutritiously. 
Um, so I think about what goes in because that actually does affect so many things. You are what you eat. You are what you eat. Yes. And the last thing is just activity. Just keep active. Yeah, particularly in nature. Yeah, well, even better. Yeah. Immerse yourself in nature and yeah. keep active. We're yep. very lucky here in South Australia. We've um, got the sea down on one side of the city and the hills up on the other where there's some gorgeous walking trails. So thank you very much for um, coming on my podcast today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And that was Dr. Carolyn Berryman generously sharing her knowledge about fibromyalgia. I hope you found today's interview interesting or inspiring. I certainly did. I found Carolyn's explanations really clear and interesting and I felt like I learned a lot about fibromyalgia. If you did enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends about it and share it with them. And if you could take a minute to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, it will help people find my podcast. If you would like to subscribe to my podcast, Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, you can subscribe on all good podcast providers like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio and Google Podcasts. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Please follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast and check out my website at www.amandaswellbeingpodcast.com. You can contact me via my website on the contacts page and please suggest any topics you'd like to learn more about or people you'd like to hear interviewed and I will do my best to deliver that to you. Producing the podcast is a labour of love. It has become my full-time job and I dedicate a lot of time, money and effort towards it. If you enjoy my podcast and would like to support it, I would be so grateful. You can make contributions via Patreon or via PayPal and you can find those links on the support page of my website. I'll put a link in the show notes too, so please do check that out. Another way you can support my podcast is by purchasing a book from the book reviews page on my website. If you click on the Amazon link there, at no extra cost to you, I will receive a small commission when you buy a book because I'm an Amazon affiliate. So thank you very much for tuning in. Eat well, move well, think well.